0: From Madison, Wisconsin, in the United States of global hegemony, it's Deviance Incast, with your host, Harriet P. For this? So powerful. Now, not only now, please,
1: A few heart-stopping seconds of anxiety. Hello earthlings and welcome to the Deviant Sincast, your weekly overview of everything important on the planet Earth. I am Eric S. Piotrowski, aka Scath in the world of video games, aka Scarto in the world of Wikipedia, and the only deviant thing about me is my sociocultural heterogeneity. Each week, I bring you a range of news stories, historical and literary perspectives, and my opinions on topics like current events, war, human rights, economics, education, hip-hop music, and killer robots. Buckle up and let's get started. I actually want to start this week with some opening thoughts about the nature of the dialectic. Uh, I've said before on this podcast that I'm a big believer in having discussions and dialogue with people rather than debate. And this takes the form of the dialectic in which someone makes a statement and then another person will respond to that statement in a way that does not seek to disprove or abuse or to ridicule the first person, but instead to add something to the discussion. And then the first person might respond to that point and then the other person will respond. On to the first point, person, second point, and so on and so forth, so we're back and forth. But the hope is that we will elevate the discussion, and and everybody involved will grow and evolve our thinking about things. But what I realized is when you are arguing with someone and you say you're wrong, if you put it like that, you are wrong. Uh, you've made a big mistake because what you have done is you have forced the other person to identify themselves with their opinion. They fuse themselves with that opinion, and because of the words that you have chosen, it becomes more unlikely that the other person will consider things from any other perspective. This is not what we want. We don't want to browbeat people into accepting our point of view just because they feel ashamed or stupid for believing the other thing. Instead, here's the thing if you were to say, that perspective is wrong, or I disagree with what you're saying, or that point of view is misguided because, then we give the person an out. We help them move away from the erroneous point to which they were temporarily attached, and we give them the opportunity to say, hey, I'm going to cast off this erroneous point of view, and I'm going to try to find a better way to think about this particular thing or that thing. Um, yeah, so whatever, a little something to think about. Uh, people might also realize that I've got some sound effects now. I've rigged up a soundboard uh, for some music, sort of in between segments, and I must give a shout-out to my friend Phil Olson uh, and his new podcast, Virtual Pizza. Uh, they set the bar a little higher, and i had been thinking about adding a couple of sounds to the podcast anyway, but uh, he really convinced me through his excellent example that I should step it up a little. Um and, you know, if you haven't listened to Virtual Pizza, you should definitely check it out. It's a new podcast. The first episode was superb. I expected it to be good, but I didn't expect it to be that good. So cheers to Phil. Uh, the interview subject on the first episode wasn't very good. You should get a better person to interview Phil uh, for future episodes, but whatever. Uh, I guess you got to do what you can with what you have, where you are, as Churchill said. Um. Yeah, so anyway, uh, yeah, Virtual Pizza, you should all go check it out. It's a really good show. Uh, I guess we should get started on some current events. Actually, you know, the whole show this week is going to be all about current events because I finally wrote the thing about Coney 2012. Um, and uh, the whole thing is up on the website, fbesp.org slash synapse, and you should check it out. You should read it. You should leave comments and let me know what you think. Uh, there are also a lot of links in this piece that uh, people should check out. There's a video that people should watch. And... Um, I know that people are busy, or for whatever reason, people might not read the article, so I thought I'd go ahead and present it here uh, in podcast form so for your listening pleasure. So strap in, people. Here we go. Resisting Oversimplification, thoughts on Coney 2012. Lorraine Hansberry's play Les Blanc features an exchange between a white missionary and a black member of a rebel fighting force. When the former accuses the latter of hating all white people, he replies, quote, No, I don't hate all white people, but I desperately wish I did. It would make everything so much easier. It's tempting to look at the world through binary lenses, split into clearly delineated camps of good and evil. We use categories, as Cornel West once said, as a way to compromise with chaos. To save ourselves from going insane, we develop schemata to make sense of the world. The problem comes when we get lazy with our mental structures and try to squeeze the world's complexity into comfortable shapes. It doesn't take much to oversimplify a person, a group, a dynamic, a situation, an organization, or a system. Unfortunately, most of the people commenting on the Coney 2012 phenomenon on all sides are guilty of woeful oversimplification. I've been meaning to write about this for some time, and it seems odd for me to take it on now, after the excitement has died down. But, in a way, this is fitting, given the point I'll be making in the final section. In every situation, we must take care to synthesize information, examine a thesis, consider its antithesis, and then decide for ourselves how to reconcile the truths in each in the form of a synthesis. Dr. King used this approach for addressing the question of capitalism versus communism when he said in 1967. Communism forgets that life is individual, capitalism forgets that life is social, and the kingdom of brotherhood is found neither in the thesis of communism nor the antithesis of capitalism, but a higher synthesis. It is found in a higher synthesis that combines the truths of both. By reflecting on each of these steps, thesis, antithesis, and synthesis, I hope to add something worthwhile into the miasma of Babel about Uganda, Kony, the LRA, and other issues that has swirled around the internet during the past month. This will be a long post, so those of you with no patience who are searching for the TLDR should stop listening now. Let me also say that I discuss these things, as always, with the desire to engage in dialectic, not debate. I'm not trying to win an argument or make people feel stupid for disagreeing with me. I am trying to present meaningful viewpoints and information that may help people get closer to authentic understanding and truths. I hope that you will do the same for me. Comments and emails are most welcome. You've probably seen the video. If not, please watch it. If nothing else, it is a superb work of propaganda produced by the NGO Invisible Children. The director, Jason Russell, lays out the case against Joseph Kony, the leader of the Lord's Resistance Army, which has carried out massive crimes against humanity in Uganda and elsewhere for the past 15 years. Along the way, Russell discusses the difficulty of getting people in the U.S., especially politicians in Washington, to care about what's happening in Uganda and other African nations. The triangular icon attached to the campaign represents an attempt to subvert the standard propaganda model, whereby a small population of gatekeepers and media executives, financed by multinational corporations, dictate to us what the news should be. Kony 2012 is focused mostly on its intended audience, tech-savvy young people in the U.S. who want to make the world a better place. The film puts the work of Invisible Children into a narrative of human fulfillment through activism, the attempt to find meaning in our lives by resisting violence and suffering. The energetic music and rapid-fire scenes of organized protest appeal powerfully to our desire to belong and our dreams of a better world. The video was a viral sensation, and for the first time in my 12 years of teaching, I was approached by students who wanted to learn more about what was going on in Central Africa. I spent two days just reading up on it and dissecting it as most as, as, you know, digging around for information as best I could, and then I spent a day showing my classes an excerpt of Kony 2012 and discussing some of the points that it makes, some of the things it leaves out, some of my responses and criticisms. I discussed this stuff at length with my friends and family, I responded to Facebook comments and Reddit threads. This whole affair has resonated strongly with me, for reasons I'll make clear in the final section. For now, I will simply say that I care deeply about human rights and political awareness. These have been core components of my pedagogical ontology, both inside and outside the classroom for my entire adult life. I was, and continue to be, impressed by the popularity of the Coney 2012 campaign, and I believe it is ultimately a good thing. antithesis the backlash part one the sudden ubiquity of the video brought with it a speedy critical response ranging from the sensible to the cynical one of the most popular reactions was an acerbic dismissal from the daily what in which the anonymous author refers to coney 2012 as quote the latest fautivist fad and quote well-engineered emotional blackmail whose main purpose is quote to line the pockets of the three people in charge of the organization Another widely shared response, published by Al Jazeera and others, was called Dangerous Ignorance, the Hysteria of Kony 2012, by Professor Adam Branch, Senior Research Fellow at the Makarare Institute of Social Research in Uganda. Writing from the capital city of Kampala, he starts by admitting that he hasn't seen the video, then runs through a list of complaints about invisible children. Quote, the warmongering, the narcissism, the commercialization, the reductive, and one-sided story they tell, their portrayal of Africans as helpless children in need of rescue by white Americans, end quote. Many of these responses contain important truths with which I agree. The Daily What, for instance, ends by saying, quote, there is no black and white in the world, and going about solving important problems like there is just serves to make all those equally troubling shades of gray invisible, end quote. This is one of the key points I emphasize to my students, and it's one of the biggest flaws in Coney 2012. The story is presented, after all, to a five-year-old child who definitively points to a single individual as the bad guy. Of course, Coney is number one on the most-wanted list of the International Criminal Court, so few people would argue that he is a a bad guy. Professor Branch's piece has even more important insight. He takes issue with Invisible Children's Call for U.S. military action, something about which I'm always nervous. KONI 2012 celebrates Obama's deployment of 100 military advisors to Uganda in 2011 to provide technical and logistic assistance to the Uganda People's Defense Force. As I told my students, we should remember that U.S. involvement in Vietnam began with a few advisors and quickly became a nightmare, and the UPDF has itself been accused of human rights violations in the past. While I echo many of the sentiments in these responses, however, I am distressed by the vitriol with which the authors attack Russell and Invisible Children. George W. Bush and Joseph Stalin are guilty of warmongering. Refusing to buy gasoline for a day is fautivism, or slacktivism, or whatever you want to call it. Kony 2012 is a far cry from these accusations, and while I share some of the criticisms, it's not fair to fling such venom at Invisible Children. Just as Invisible Children is guilty of oversimplifying the LRA insurgency, many of those criticizing 2012, are guilty of oversimplifying the video and its creators. It is an absurdity of the first order to demonize people you condemn for engaging in demonization and oversimplification. We must resist the urge, natural and comforting though it may be, to classify people into simple camps of good and bad, worthy and unworthy, smart and stupid. This demonization went to absurd places elsewhere on the web, amidst the jaded clouds of cynicism on Reddit, for example, a popular image post suggests that invisible children is simply a pawn of u s military planners. This sentiment is echoed by Professor Branch, who writes, quote, "Invisible children are useful idiots being used by those in the u s government who seek to militarize Africa to send more and more weapons and military aid, and to bolster the power of states who are u s allies." A friend of mine forward end quote a friend of mine forwarded me an essay. Which which takes this notion much further, although I would point out it was found on an internet discussion forum, and the author is identified only as J2K. Refuting the model of activism in Coney 2012, this post suggests that IC is actually a perfect example of the propaganda model, making young activists do the bidding of the man. By creating this so-called movement and making young people actually demand the U.S. government intervene in Africa, the masterminds behind this campaign would manage the impossible, reversing the propaganda model in order to make it emanate from the people. By doing so, the elite's agenda is not only accepted by the masses, it is perceived as a victory by them. This is more demonization flipped around to call the integrity of the filmmakers and anyone who wants to help stop the crimes of Coney and the LRA into question. I hate to say it, but it is possible to disagree with Invisible Children's policy recommendations without accusing them of genocidal imperialism. A quick aside, the split between criticizing what people say and demonizing who they are is brilliantly dissected by Jay Smooth, a vlogger at Ill Doctrine. His video is so excellent, I will play it here for those of you who haven't ever seen or heard it. Please take a couple of minutes now and watch it. I should say I need to give a hat tip to Colleen Butler, who first showed me this. So here you go, Jay Smooth, talking about who you are and what you said.
0: Race. The final frontier. No matter what channel you watch, no matter what feed you aggregate, it seems like everybody everywhere is talking about race right now. And when everybody everywhere is talking about race, that means sooner or later, you're gonna have to tell somebody that they said something that sounded racist. So you need to be ready and have a plan in place for how to approach the inevitable that sounded racist conversation. And I'm going to tell you how to do that. The most important thing that you've got to do is remember the difference between the what they did conversation and the what they are conversation. Those are two totally different conversations and you need to make sure that you pick the right one. The what they did conversation focuses strictly on the person's words and actions and explaining why what they did and what they said was unacceptable. This is also known as the that thing you said was racist conversation and that's the conversation that you want to have. The what they are conversation on the other hand takes things one step further and uses what they did and what they said to draw conclusions about what kind of person they are. This is also known as the I think you are racist conversation. This is the conversation you don't want to have. Because that conversation takes us away from the facts of what they did and the speculation about their motives and intentions and those are things you can only guess at you can't ever prove and that makes it way too easy for them to derail your whole argument. And that is the part that's crucial to understand. When you say, I think he's a racist, that's not a bad move because you might be wrong, that's a bad move because you might be right. Because if that dude really is racist, you want to make sure you hold him accountable and don't let him off easy. And even though intuitively it feels It feels like the hardest way to hit him is just run up on him and say, I think your ass is racist. When you handle it that way, you're actually letting him off easy because you're setting up a conversation that's way too simple for him to derail and duck out of. Just think about how this plays out every time a politician or a celebrity gets caught out there. It always starts out as a what they did conversation, but as soon as the celebrity and their defenders get on camera, they start doing judo flips and switching it into a what they are conversation. I have known this person for years and I know for a fact that they are not a racist and how dare you claim to know what's inside their soul just because they made one little joke about watermelon tap dancing and going back to Africa. And then you try and explain that we don't need to see inside their soul to know that they shouldn't have said all that about the watermelon, and you try to focus on the facts of the situation, but by then it's too late because the what they are conversation is a rhetorical Bermuda Triangle where everything drowns in a sea of empty posturing until somebody just blames it all on hip hop and we forget the whole thing ever happens. Don't let this happen to you. When somebody picks my pocket, I'm not going to be chasing him down so I can figure out whether he feels like he's a thief deep down in his heart i'm gonna be chasing him down so i can get my wallet back i don't care what he is but i need to hold him accountable for what he did and that's how we need to approach these conversations about race treat them like they took your wallet and focus on the part that matters holding each person accountable for the impact of their words and actions i don't care what you are i care about what you did
1: okay back to our feature presentation my, my biggest problem with all the cynical backlash is that it leads to a bitter paralysis drained of hope. If young people become interested in a worthy cause, and ending the suffering of child soldiers, not to mention killing, rape, mutilation, war, we would all agree, I hope, is certainly a worthy cause, only to be viciously ridiculed and scorned in ways that are more personal than policy-based, they will naturally recede into a cocoon of passivity, and that, without question, is right where the man wants them. Let me expand on this point for a moment, since it dovetails with my life's work as an educator. Every teacher will tell you that the biggest problem most kids have is not asking for help when they need it. This stems from a natural human desire to not look stupid. Alas, the only way we can ever become smarter is if we accept our ignorance and seek ways to eradicate it. Unfortunately, the nastiness enabled by the internet's anonymity and nurtured by our society's growing celebration of self-destruction, as seen on countless so-called reality shows, bum fight videos, degrading supposedly adult media, torture porn movies, etc., etc., leads many people to put a very high priority on not looking stupid. Few other things matter more. When we're judged quickly and harshly for making mistakes or having incomplete information, we begin training ourselves to avoid situations where we might be judged. Eventually, you might just say, I'm not even going to bother commenting on anything or having an opinion or going public with my opinion because I don't want to look stupid if my information isn't completely right or uh, beyond reproach. This is especially true of teenagers who are most sensitive to social condemnation because of their age, swirling hormones, and rapidly expanding world. Considering how personal and unpleasant these criticisms have been, I'm not surprised that Jason Russell suffered a psychotic episode recently. Now, this is not to say we should walk around on eggshells or refrain from humorous hyperbole for fear of offending delicate teenagers. Quite the contrary. I wish to see the next generation of young activists become strong, tested in the icy fires of the struggle. But every soul needs to be nurtured, and we all have a responsibility to encourage the best in other people while we combat the worst. the backlash part two i want to address two other criticisms of coney 2012 and invisible children before moving on to the synthesis portion of the evening the first involves money in the group's purpose the Daily What echoed criticisms of uh, Invisible Children by Yale professor Chris Blattman and a comprehensive piece in foreign affairs by, I'm going to butcher these names, I'm sure, Marika Shomeris, Tim Allen, and Cohn Vlasenroot. The Daily What put it like this, quote, The organization behind Coney 2012, Invisible Children, Inc., is an extremely shady nonprofit that has been called misleading, naive, and dangerous by a Yale political science professor and has been accused by Foreign Affairs magazine of manipulating facts for strategic purposes. End quote. Again, however, the Daily What is guilty here of oversimplification. Less than a week after the post to which the Daily What links, Mr. Blatman wrote this, quote, could, in spite of it all, the Coney 2012 campaign still lead to the right solution? I think the answer might be yes. Suppose you believe, as I do, that capturing or killing Kony is the best of a bunch of bad options. And suppose you also believe, as I do, that to capture or kill the man, Central African governments will need advanced military, intelligence, and special forces support. This viral video, whatever its weaknesses, may get you closer to that objective than any other action I can think of. End quote. As for the article in Foreign Affairs, and I really must insist that you read it because it's very well written, the Daily What again clouds the issue. First of all, so far as I know, Foreign Affairs hasn't accused Invisible Children of anything. A publication can only be said to take a position when its editorial board publishes an opinion piece, and articles from researchers do not qualify. But the original article itself is much less damning of Invisible Children than the Daily What suggests. Here's the original, quote, During the past decade, U.S.-based activists concerned about the LRA have successfully, if quietly, pressured the George W. Bush and Obama administrations to take a side in the fight between the LRA and the Ugandan government. Among the most influential of advocacy groups focusing specifically on the LRA are the English Project, the Resolve Camp—excuse me, the Enough Project, the Resolve Campaign, the Canadian-based group Gulu Walk, and the media-oriented group Invisible Children. Older agencies from Human Rights Watch to World Vision have also been involved in their campaign such organizations have manipulated facts for strategic purposes, exaggerating the scale of LRA abductions and murders, and emphasizing the LRA's use of innocent children as soldiers, and portraying Kony, a brutal man to be sure, as uniquely awful, a Kurtz-like embodiment of evil. They rarely refer to the Ugandan government atrocities or those of the Sudan's People's Liberation Army, such as attacks against civilians, or looting of civilian homes and businesses, or the complicated regional politics fueling the conflict. Note that this charge is being leveled against a wide variety of organizations. Invisible children may be guilty of such manipulation, but the Daily What is guilty of its own manipulation here. The Daily What also calls Invisible Children's finances into question. Quote, "Additionally, IC has a low 2-star rating in accountability from the Charity Navigator because they won't let their financials be independently audited. That's not a good thing. In fact, it's a very bad thing, and it should make you immediately pause and reflect on where the money you're sending them is going." End quote. Now, this is as good a place as any to mention the page that Invisible Children created to respond to all of these criticisms. It's worth a look. I will let it speak for itself. But the most interesting response to me so far has come from Charity Navigator itself. Quote, While it is fair to debate the appropriateness of this charity's approach to solving a serious problem, some bloggers, donors, and even reporters have mischaracterized the financial health of Invisible Children and even our evaluation of the charity. Rather than back away from the criticism Invisible Children's CEO Ben Kizi addressed many of the concerns, we commend the charity for this approach and what appears to be its commitment to transparency, and we'd also like to take a moment to set the record straight on a few items related to our rating of Invisible Children." End quote. Now, I won't spend time delving into the details here, nor will I take a position on whether you should give money to invisible children or not. But I will point out that taking the word of the Daily What alone is as absurd as taking invisible children's word. You have to do your own research. And that's just a good rule for life, people. Whatever the situation, even in terms of the Coney situation here, you shouldn't take my word for stuff. I could be totally full of crap. You need to do your own research. Look it up for yourself. Because I don't care who you are listening to or reading or paying attention to or watching. At some point, you are going to find something that you disagree with that person about. Every person I've ever known, everybody I've ever looked up to, all of my intellectual and artistic heroes have always said or done something that I disagree with. That's okay. It's not the end of the world. We might like to have some Yoda-like character we could always go to and agree 100% with whatever they say, but you know what? That's probably not even advisable. You probably don't really want that. What you want to develop is an independent mind that can make up its own mind about situations in the world. And the more you rely on individuals or websites, sites to tell you how to think, well, that's just not healthy in any turn of the path. A more justified question relates to Invisible Children's approach to activism. Would the money they raise be better spent on direct aid to the people of Uganda, or are they right to spend millions making flashy movies in order to raise awareness in the United States and other wealthy nations? Both Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch have explored this question and other questions related to Kony 2012. Human Rights Watch said, quote, While some of the criticisms may be valid, the film's central message is also valid. Kony and his LRA continue to commit horrific abuses at a terrible human cost in Central Africa. He and other LRA leaders should be arrested and brought to justice. And again, I don't think anybody would argue with that. That was me editorializing right there. Okay, back to the Human Rights Watch uh, quote. The video has significantly increased public awareness about Kony and the LRA's crimes and led many people to ask questions about how to end the abuses. Watching a video about the LRA will not, on its own, result in Kony's apprehension or and LRA abuses, but the massive interest generated by the video could and should be harnessed to transform good intentions into concrete and effective action. End quote. Obviously, this is a question without a definite answer, but I'll return to the tricky question of awareness in the synthesis section. It's coming, I promise, it's coming. First, however, I want to wrestle with one last accusation leveled at Invisible Children, and specifically Kony 2012, the so-called white man's burden. Some people accuse Invisible Children of perpetuating a narrative of white do-gooders trying to save Africans from themselves. Russell and others, they claim, are carrying out zealous campaigns which make themselves feel good, but which exclude or sideline African people from the process and, worst of all, don't make things any better. They might make things worse. Professor Branch suggests that Kony 2012 presents Ugandans, quote, as helpless children in need of rescue by white Americans. He goes on to say, quote, I wouldn't have known about Kony 2012 if it hadn't been for the emails I've been receiving from the U.S., and that, I think, is telling. Kony 2012 and the debate around it are not about Uganda, but about America. Uganda is largely just the stage for a debate over the meaning of political activism in the U.S. today. Blattman also makes this point. Quote, There's also something inherently misleading, naive, maybe even dangerous about the idea of rescuing children or saving of Africa. It's often not an accidental choice of words, even if it's unwitting. It hints uncomfortably of the white man's burden. Worse, sometimes it does more than hint. The savior attitude is pervasive in advocacy and it inevitably shapes programming, usually misconceived programming. The saving attitude pervades too many aid failures, not to mention military interventions. The list is long. End quote. And Laina Dawes wrote a very comprehensive and fair piece on BlogHer about this issue, quote, advocating for those is commendable. But white folks getting involved in a non-white part of the world can be problematic, and I'm seeing a lot of criticism of Kony 2012 itself. It's the latest in a troubling paternalistic pattern of privileged white people discussing causes in Africa and other continents commonly perceived as disenfranchised because of race, gender, or socioeconomic status. The Ugandans of Kony 2012 do not have the access or opportunity to tell their own story, their voices are only legitimized and heard after being filtered through a white point of view, end quote. This sentiment is echoed by a number of people in Africa itself. Boing Boing published a collection of responses from African writers and artists about the video and Invisible Children's work. To give just one example, from Ugandan journalist Angelo Opi aizama quote, the simplicity of the good versus evil, where good is inevitably white slash Western and bad is black or African, is also reminiscent of some of the worst excesses of colonial era interventions. And I would point out, end quote, I would point out that in the video, there is, you know, the, the, The suffering of the children who were conscripted by the Lord's Resistance Army uh, is actually personified in the form of the kid named Jacob, and uh, I don't think it's totally fair to depict everything good as being white and Western, everything bad as black or African, but to some extent that does exist in the video. All right, here's the point. As a well-to-do white man who has spent almost 20 years of his life deeply involved with human rights activism in so-called non-white parts of the world, I am very, very anxious about these charges. I try to be an enlightened person who takes action in the name of solidarity, not sympathy or saving other people. In the 1970s, a group of women from indigenous Australia created a statement to people of conscience who wanted to support their struggle for justice. It contains a quote that is often ascribed to Lilla Watson, although she prefers not to receive individual credit. The quote is this, quote, If you have come here to help me, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. End quote. This is a beautiful crystallization of how I feel. As a teacher, I am driven by a longing for my own freedom and an awareness that I cannot be free unless everyone else is free too. As Boots from the Coup put it, F the name, F the game, F the riches fool, I ain't got stuff unless all my folks gonna have it too. This is not an academic distinction. Many white people, and people of other racial and ethnic backgrounds, are stirred by their emotions and they take action out of pity, not solidarity. Many white folks consider themselves uniquely qualified to solve problems regardless of what the people personally affected by those problems might suggest. There is plenty of paternalism and condescension in the world of political activism. And as I've said, I think people in the United States especially feel the desire always to, when we see a problem, we want to fix it. We want to settle it. And especially guys have this attitude of, you know, if we see a woman who's upset, we'll often be like, well, here's what you should do to fix it. Let me tell you what I think. And here's what we're... And I think in a way, that's kind of a good thing. You know, it's healthy to try to take a pragmatic approach to things and try to ask yourself, what can I do to fix this problem? However, we also need to be able to step back and say, wait, is it my place to fix this problem? What might the negatives of me being the guy who goes out to try to solve this myself, how how that might backfire? And what are the other elements in the equation here? Because every situation has lots of elements in its equation. We see glimpses of this tendency in Coney 2012. After Jason Russell hears his Ugandan friend Jacob claim that he would prefer to die since, quote, no one is taking care of us and we are not going to school, he makes a grandiose promise. Quote, we are also going to do everything that we can to stop them. Do you hear my words? Do you know what I mean? We are. We are going to stop them. I promise you. End quote. Now, this is a silly moment because Russell's making a promise that he almost certainly cannot keep. Or can he? We should give Russell credit for trying, really trying in the many senses of that term. As De La Soul said, really trying. Who does that we refer to? We're going to stop him. I mean, who is he referring to there? Does he see himself as one individual or his three friends as Jacob's savior? Or does he want Jacob to be free? Does he want to work together with Jacob because Russell's freedom is bound up with Jacob's freedom? I should point out, Jason Russell went to Africa for the first time in 2000 as part of a Christian missionary delegation to Kenya, but he quickly changed his focus once he got there. Quote, I didn't feel like it was affecting people, Russell said. They didn't need faith. They needed malarial and HIV medicine and protection for their women and children. End quote. Now we might take issue with russell's possible view of himself and other white folks as the source of that protection and there are justified questions to be asked about how ic goes about responding to the horrors of lra atrocities and civilians dying in africa given the contempt with which many ugandans view invisible children moreover i'm not able to take a definitive stance on whether i would praise or bury that organization although i would point out that the our team page on ic's website features many ugandans in the mix Whether they're integral parts of the organization is unclear, and, you know, of course, we'd have to do more research to be able to say with any certainty, yes, this group is doing excellent and superb things in Uganda, or no, mostly it's just about raising awareness, and maybe the uh, people who started the organization are doing pretty well off of the profits that they make. Their salaries, I should say. It's a non-profit, but, you know, whatever. But I am impressed by the dedication, commitment, and ideals of Russell and his comrades. I'm sure they've wrestled with the potential in themselves for white saviorism, it's important for us white people to check ourselves for this potential on a regular basis. And of course, if we find ourselves veering in that direction, we need to pause and reevaluate. But there's also the danger that we will, and I think many white folks do, assume that it is therefore impossible for us to advocate for peace and justice in a non-white part of the world without perpetuating neocolonial stereotypes and paradigms. That's not true. We have to find the third way. And this, at long last, brings me to the final section. Synthesis, the long-distance run. For over 15 years, I've been a member of two human rights organizations, the East Timor and Indonesia Action Network, ETAN, and Amnesty International, AI. If you don't know the story of East Timor's occupation at the hands of the Indonesian military with support from the U.S., Britain, and other Western powers, please read the synopsis and or the long version that I've posted on my website, fbesp.org slash uh, I wrote all of the synopsis and most of the long version. The long version is a Wikipedia article called The Indonesian Occupation of East Timor. This work with ETAN and AI has at times been discouraging, very discouraging. During the occupation of East Timor, I regularly heard scornful reactions from advocates of Realpolitik that such violence is simply part of the real world, I should just deal with it, I'll do more good for East Timor if I work on human rights and stop worrying about independence, etc., etc., Uh, I watched distracted young people in the U.S. turn their back on the global awareness I was trying to offer. I listened to annoyed yawns from older people who viewed my activism as some sort of adorable naivete. Worse, I encountered U.S. politicians who refused to stand up for human rights and international law. I watched as our government ignored atrocities committed by our ally Indonesia. I saw arms shipments and training programs continue despite bloody massacres and enforced starvation. And I bubbled with rage when my fellow Americans refused to care about it. It is from this perspective that I appreciate the tremendous victory of Coney 2012. I can only wish that we E-tanners had achieved something even close to the widespread publicity that Invisible Children has accomplished. Credit, of course, should be given to the documentary films Manufacturing Consent and Death of a Nation. Both of those are available online. You should totally go watch them. There's links on the website. The cocoon of ennui and mindless entertainment in which most Americans and people in other wealthy nations live is formidable and horrifying. I am painfully chagrined by the lack of interest that most of my fellow citizens show toward the rest of the world, and even different communities within our own borders. Most of my students are too preoccupied with brain-numbing television, professional sports, materialistic consumption, and or violent video games to pay attention to things going on in other countries. Now I should point out, I love playing video games. I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with professional sports. I don't think there's anything wrong with watching TV in and of itself. The, the The key is, are you balancing those fun escapist activities with some kind of engagement in the real world? Can't have one without the other. All work and no play, all that stuff. And all play and no work. Both of them make Jack a dull guy. Those who do pay attention to the rest of the world often accept a simple U.S.-centric view of our noble intentions offered by CNN and the New York Times. This is why I tell people you shouldn't just read one news source, you should engage with lots of different sources, you know, stuff from other countries, Al Jazeera, The Telegraph, The Guardian, etc., etc. It is therefore remarkable... Oh, and there's a really good U.S. Uh, English-language paper in Pakistan called Dawn. I recommend people checking that out. And Democracy Now, I'll say, and you know, others, whatever. It is therefore remarkable that the phenomenon of Kony 2012 has broken through this chrysalis of distraction. Raising awareness by itself is not enough, but it is important, and it's very hard to do. I have spent countless hours and hours and hours holding protest signs, usually only with a few others, like my late friend Nate Osborne. There's a picture of him on the website. He is an awesome individual. i got to make sure I linked to the uh, obituary I wrote about him. He was an awesome guy. Uh, Anyway, uh, standing alone, gathering petition signatures, organizing speaking events, writing about various political issues. I'm used to being ignored, but I keep at it because people need to know the truth about what's going on. V didn't give up, did he? No way, man. Gotta tell the people the truth. Force feed them those red pills, man. No, wait, you can't force feed someone red pills. I can't open the door for, no, wait, I can't make you go through the door, Morpheus said. I can only open the door for you. You take the blue pill, you go back to sleep, and you believe whatever you want to believe. You take the red pill, and I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Let me tell you something, people. You need to take that red pill, and it's unpleasant, but you got to do it. I don't know where J2K gets the notion that human rights groups like Invisible Children are receiving marching orders from the powerful elites of the world. If anyone has any actual evidence for this, let me know, please. From what I can tell, Invisible Children is doing exactly what we E. Tanners did during East Timor's occupation. We are trying to subvert the propaganda model and demanding that our government act in defense of human rights, not just some narrow vision of hegemonic power or national interest. Such a demand requires popular awareness and we should continue to raise awareness about child soldiers in Africa and other outrages against human dignity. Yes, excitement about the LRA has died down with predictable speed, and people are making jokes about that on Reddit now, even though a second video is apparently due to appear any day now. We'll see what happens when that shows up. But this is where we come in. Everyone who's interested in taking meaningful action to end LRA atrocities and working together for the mutual liberation of you and me in the style of Lila Watson and her associates. To paraphrase Thomas Paine, these are the times that try the souls of activists. The advocate of summer solidarity and sunshine struggle will at this moment shrink from the service of a better world. People, don't shrink. Whether you work with Invisible Children or some other organization, you must get involved in some meaningful way. The suffering that goes on around the world is needless, and we have the power to stop it. We can do things. I do not accept this view of the world that just says, Oh, stuff's messed up, but you know what? The man's got everything on lockdown, and we can't change nothing. Bollocks. If that were true, Indonesia would still be occupying East Timor. But they're not, so it's not true. Don't believe the hype. Oh, i got a sound eclipse for that. Here, wait, I'll play it.
0: Don't believe the
1: hype. I'm not going to go crazy with the sound effects on this show like I do on the Veteran Gamers, but once in a while, man, it's it's necessary. I have bitter contempt for those who ridicule those of us in the struggle who don't ever do a single meaningful thing for positive change. To wit, in my work with ETAN, I had the good fortune to meet the journalists Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn, who were present at the 1991 Santa Cruz Massacre. And if you don't know about that, you've got to check out about it. I've got to make a note here to uh, link the Santa Cruz Massacre. And uh, there's a picture of Amy Goodman and Alan Nairn on the website uh, right after the massacre. And they're all bloodied, and he's got his skull fractured. It was a horrible experience. Anyway, uh, Ms. Goodman has devoted her life to telling the stories of the East Timorese and other ignored people via her news program, Democracy Now!, and Alan Nairn has gone on to be one of the most important journalists of our time. They're both in- incredibly important journalists. Mr. Nairn told me something once which I shall never forget. He was told by an official in the Indonesian military that while holding a political prisoner, they will sometimes refrain from killing the young man or woman if they receive one letter from someone in another country. Think about that. One letter literally could save someone's life. The incredible power of writing letters, of course, is a core principle behind the work of Amnesty International, which provides simple but meaningful ways to take action for human rights. This year at Sun Prairie High School, where I teach, a group of students got together to form an amnesty chapter of their own, and I was honored to sponsor it. Uh, They're writing letters and spreading the word about political prisoners and the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, I've been inspired by these young people, just as I have been inspired by my mother's lifetime of teaching, my brother's decades of labor activism, my wife's passionate commitment to feminist radio and peace work, we met through the East Timor Action Network, actually, the people of East Timor, and countless other men and women who devote themselves to a better, more peaceful, more just world. Kony 2012 exists at the confluence of consciousness and material activism, where I have lived most of my life. Neither one can stand alone as meaningful political citizenship, nor can they sustain an individual sense of self without enlightenment, positive self-image, spiritual armor, and a good sense of humor. But, in a world as broken as ours, we each have the responsibility to reject oversimplified binaries of all flavors, find an effective form of action, however we might define it, and get to work. In a 2004 piece entitled, My Last Talk with Gary Webb, Richard Thiem wrote, and I'm, people who listen to this podcast have heard this before, but I'm going to say it again. Quote, The passion for truth and justice is not a sprint. It is a long-distance run that requires a different kind of training, a different degree of commitment. Our eye must be on a goal that we know we will never reach in our lifetimes. Faith is the name of believing in the transcendent, often despite all evidence to the contrary. And so I say to whosoever reads this with a willingness to join that long distance run, I will be right there with you. The struggle goes on. All right, so that's the post. Uh I hope you liked it. Uh, I'm going to get out of here in a second, but first I want to go ahead and uh, read you a quote from Noam Chomsky. This is going to be our quote of the week.
0: Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. Stop repent because the ending is near, but don't panic, you can't function if you live in a fear. Pay attention, you got to listen to here. Wait up
1: If you don't know about Noam Chomsky, uh, maybe someday I'll do a podcast just about him because he's a fascinating person. I think he's really awesome. He said some things I don't agree with, and Tom Bissell and I have had some discussions about stuff that he said that was messed up about the Vietnam War and stuff. uh, But he's also said a lot of stuff that I really agree with. And he said in January 2002 this, which I think most people can probably agree with. Quote, We cannot say much about human affairs with any confidence, but sometimes it is possible. We can, for example, be fairly confident that either there will be a world without war, or there won't be a world, at least a world inhabited by creatures other than bacteria and beetles with some scattering of others. Alright, that's the end of it, folks. Uh show notes and links to everything in this week's podcast are on my blog, DeviantSynapse fbesp.org slash synapse. Uh, fbesp.org/synapse. My website is the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, fbesp.org with links to music and fiction and multimedia and lots of other stuff as well. Thank you for listening. Please get in touch with feedback or suggestions. ESP at fbesp.org I will stop talking now. now turn on, turn on. Deviant Sincast is a production of the floating brain of Eric S. Piotrowski, which is solely responsible for its content. This program is a joint venture of Clay records and Garrison Multimedia. Our show is made possible by a grant from the Fargus Foundation. Some restrictions may apply. See SOR for details. Fight the power. So powerful.